Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka, and I'm here with Professor Akhil Amar. Hello, Akhil. Hello, Andy. And there's quite a story about your being here, but the audience will hear it uh, very shortly. Yes, and we're here also with Dean and Professor Vikamar, who's here once again to help us talk about the confirmation process. Welcome back, Vic. Thank you both for having me. Yeah, so just quickly, I want to apologize to our audience for the late upload this week of the podcast, um, but I do have a good excuse because I was unconscious. <laughs> Actually, I, I underwent surgery this week, but uh, nothing serious, and um, I'm making a full recovery. So here we are a couple of days late, but actually it works out quite well um, because since we were late, we have the opportunity to talk to you about developments that have occurred in the last couple of days. And just today, um, Vic actually had a session with Senator uh, Dick Durbin, who's the uh, the chairman of the House of the Senate Judiciary Committee, where the confirmation hearings were just held. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, Vic? Yeah. Uh, Senator Durbin, of course, is from uh, Illinois, my uh, uh, current adopted state. Uh, his son actually went to my law school, uh, the University of Illinois College of Law. Um, Dick Durbin, of course, himself is a lawyer. He uh, grew up in Springfield, Illinois, the capital, about an hour and a half away from Champaign and went to Georgetown for undergraduate and law school. Uh, and then after serving in the House for, uh, I think, seven terms, he was elected to the Senate and he's been there for a couple of decades uh, and now, as you point out, he's the chairman of the uh, Judiciary Committee, uh, and he wanted to talk to some law students uh, at the University of Illinois College of Law about the confirmation process. So he came and gave remarks for about 20, 25 minutes and then took questions for another 45 minutes. He said, by the way, that this is the first committee he's ever chaired, is the Judiciary Committee. He had to wait quite a while. Um, he said, you know, it's very happenstance when people get to chair a committee because you don't know when someone's going to pass away or resign from the Senate. Uh, and so he waited quite a while before he was able to uh, exercise the power of the chair. And he had a lot of interesting observations, um, some stuff that I kind of knew and other stuff that, that I learned a lot from. Uh, he said, for example, that under the first year of President Biden, they had confirmed more judges than under the first year of President Trump, almost by a two-to-one margin, about 58 federal judges. And that's three times the rate of uh, judge filling under Barack Obama, which, again, I did not realize that the Biden-Senate uh, connection here had been as efficient as it seems to have been. Of course, uh, this is the first Supreme Court appointment, but, uh, but uh, Court of Appeals appointments and District Court appointments are very important as well. Uh, another point that he made that I hadn't really thought about was how COVID is, is affecting the current process. He was very happy to see that Susan Collins, the senator, Republican senator from Maine, announced this week that she was going to uh, vote in favor of confirming Judge Jackson. That gives him a little bit more breathing room because, of course, there are 50 uh, Democratic senators plus a tie-breaking uh, Kamala Harris vice presidential vote. But as he said a few times today, you know, with COVID, you never know when some people are going to be gone from the Senate and what could be a small margin of victory turns into a deficit. Uh, and so, for example, he uh, told me to, that he got off the uh, call with the Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats earlier today. And he made sure that all of them knew that they had to be ready and healthy on Monday 
when they're going to vote Judge Jackson out of committee and they got to be ready to be there for several hours and he hopes they, they're feeling up to it. Um, he also said that the, the first two people he called after he learned about Judge Jackson's nomination were Chuck Grassley, the ranking Republican on the committee, whom Senator Durbin has a lot of respect for. He said that Chuck Grassley is not a lawyer, but he's very smart and he holds his own and he's learned a lot. And he's a good, uh, honest, fair partner. And, uh, and, and Durbin thought that Grassley uh, acquitted himself very professionally during this hearing. Uh, and then the other person he called was Susan Collins because he thought that she was the Republican who perhaps was most likely to be the first to uh, support Judge Jackson. And so Judge Jackson met with Senator Collins in one of those office interviews we talked about during the last podcast. And certain issues emerged out of that that Senator Collins shared with Senator Durbin. And then he went back and and, and got them to schedule a second uh, in-person meeting between the judge and Senator Collins. And it was in that second meeting that the judge was able, I think, to uh, assuage some of the concerns that that, uh, Senator Collins might have had uh, to the point where she could get to the point of of, of supporting uh, Judge Jackson. So I thought that was interesting. He, he did he thought, mention any specific concerns that uh, that might have been addressed? He didn't, and uh, I'm uh, again. Th- there's a reason why the 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 get-togethers between Judge Jackson and and, mm-hmm. and Senator Collins were uh, in the office because I'm sure they could talk about some things without the glare of, of the the spotlight. And Senator Durbin's a very careful lawyer, a very smart person. Uh, I thought a very balanced person. He. He did not spend all of the hour and a half he was with us railing against the Republicans. He said that the Democrats' hands are not clean in this matter. He uh, echoed what we said last time in the podcast, that a lot of this goes back to Judge Bork's confirmation hearings. He says the Republicans still feel smarting. Uh, They're still smarting from the Bork hearings and and the Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, They didn't think that Brett Kavanaugh was treated fairly. Notwithstanding that, uh, Senator Durbin thought that all but three or four of the Republicans on the committee uh, did very professional, solid, expected uh, jobs in, in interviewing uh, and questioning Judge Jackson. He thought that there were three or so, uh, I think at one point he said three or four, at another point he said two or three uh, senators on the other side of the aisle who he thought were not fair and were not professional in the way they approached the questioning. And he didn't name who they were, but I think uh, we can probably figure out most of who they, he, he, he was thinking of, if not each, each of the ones. So he didn't name Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, for example? No, but I'm guessing those were two. I, I don't know, for example, whether he would have lumped Lindsey Graham in that mix. Uh, I watched some of uh, Senator Graham's questioning, and I thought that that was not altogether relevant to what with the task at hand. I thought he was really trying to dredge up old... Uh, battles uh, as well, but I don't know uh, how Senator Durbin felt about that. Uh, He also said something that I thought was interesting when asked, my students asked a lot of great questions. For example, uh, uh, one student said, well, you know, you criticize the Republicans for voting against Judge Jackson as they're likely to do, but you voted against every Republican nominee in the past several uh, uh, iterations. Uh, and so how can you really blame the other side for voting against 
not candidates and nominees whose ideologies don't align with uh, their party. Uh, you certainly do that. And he said two things about that. He, he intimated that the Republican nominees were more conservative than the Democratic nominees were liberal in recent years. Uh, and I don't know if that's altogether true. Uh, I'm thinking of Justice Sotomayor, for example. I think it is true for, say, Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan. Uh, and I do think that Justices Alito and Gorsuch and Barrett and probably Kavanaugh as well um, are, are pretty solidly, uh, cons- consistently conservative. But that was one part of his explanation. The other was he goes back and forth on whether he should have voted against Chief Justice John Roberts. He, he says sometimes he thinks he should have confirmed Justice Roberts. Um, which I thought was an interesting concession that, that to make. That, that uh, I don't know if it's with the benefit of hindsight uh, and seeing how J- Chief Justice Roberts has has acquitted himself. He said at one point that Chief Justice Roberts, in his view, that is Senator Durbin's view, is very focused on the legacy of the Roberts Court, and that is causing him to want to keep the court as centrist as possible, uh, keep it from veering too far to the right. He also said, quite interestingly that he thinks that Justice Brett Kavanaugh is perhaps the most likely candidate of the non-Roberts Republicans on the court to help Roberts keep the, the court in the center, that, that he is the most rulable, if you will. Uh, now, obviously, we don't, none of us has very much data on, on, on Justice Barrett, uh, but I, I'm guessing that, that Senator Durbin feels the way I do about uh, Clarence Thomas and, and Justices Alito, Justice Thomas Alito and, and Justice Gorsuch, that they're not really likely to change the path that they set out on. But he doesn't feel that way about uh, Justice Kavanaugh, and he didn't talk about uh, Justice Barrett. The other interesting thing he said, and, and I again, this didn't resonate with me entirely, even though I found all of the senators' remarks very uh, thoughtful and provocative. When asked how we can get back to a more sane way of, of confirming justices, he said he would favor resumption of the rule requiring 60 votes before you bring a nomination to the floor. So uh, it was, of course, the, the Democrats uh, under Harry Reid, who was the Democratic uh, leader of the Senate, uh, who relaxed that requirement for 60 Senate votes in the lower federal courts on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, he, he, he pushed through some uh, Democratic nominees uh, under Obama with, with fewer than 60 votes. And then that led the Republicans, when they had control of the Senate, to do the same thing with the Supreme Court. So now they could, they could confirm Justices Kavanaugh and, and Barrett with fewer uh, than, uh, than 60 votes. He thinks going back to 60 would discipline the presidents to nominate people who are more moderate, more centrist, uh, and then you could get more consensus uh, to, to confirm them. I don't think that that's likely to happen. I think in today's world, that will just be even more of a recipe for keeping uh, vacancies open for long periods of time. And, and Senator Durbin did allow the very real possibility that if the Republicans win the Senate in 2022, he said he hopes it, he doesn't, it doesn't happen. He says he's working every day as hard as he can to prevent that from happening. But he said it might happen because I think most people think it will happen. Uh, uh, he thinks that the Republicans will not um, allow Biden to fill any other Supreme Court vacancies that come up. 
And he didn't say this, but I would take it a step further, that even if a Democrat were to win the White House in 2024 and the Republicans were to hold the Senate past 2022 into 2024 and 2026, I think that we would have just a short, uh, short staff, a shorthanded court for many, many years, because I just don't see any uh, way out of the current morass. But he said, and, this, and, then I'll, and then I'll stop here. One thing he said is things, things can change quickly. And the, if, if senators who have six-year staggered terms for a reason, they're supposed to be freed up to be a little less worried about having to defend a controversial vote, a cross-party vote, for, for example. Um, uh, they don't have to stand for re-election so quickly, just as House members do. He hopes that if a few senators kind of see the light and, and take a longer-term and more courageous view, that's my word, not his, uh, that things can turn around just as they've, they've turned around pretty quickly uh, uh, in the opposite direction. He said 10 years ago, things were much better. The Senate operated as a much better institution 10 years ago than it did now. And so he thinks in 10 years from now, maybe there's, there's, uh, there's room for uh, optimism. Uh, he blamed campaign finance and uh, the Citizens United decision for a lot of the fear that senators live under because if they cast a cross-party vote, a controversial cross-party vote, it's just going to be so hard for them to raise the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars they have to raise to defend their seat. Uh, and I didn't have a chance to ask him, you know, how, what, what could replace Citizens United because the First Amendment is the First Amendment. But he definitely thinks campaign finance is the single biggest cause of the dysfunction in the Senate that we have has seen over the last 10 years. Mikhail, you wanted to uh, comment on this? Yeah, there's so much there. So let's just identify four or five of the um, the, the things that um, uh, Vic has uh, teed up. So Vic said his, his students asked great questions, um, uh, and one was, um, to Durbin himself, you don't vote for Republican nominees. Why do you expect them to vote uh, for Democratic nominees? It's not just Dick Durbin who didn't doesn't vote for Republican nominees to the Supreme Court. It's basically the entire Democratic Party, all the Democratic senators. So I just want to actually take the Vic's student's question and just sharpen it. How many Democratic senators voted for Amy Coney Barrett? I think the answer is zero. How many Democratic senators voted for Neil Gorsuch? I think the answer is three, one of whom uh, is Joe Manchin. How many Democratic senators um, voted for... Um, uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who really got roughed up, I think the answer is one, and, and that's um, Joe Manchin. So it's not just Durbin. Um, uh, and I testified at the Kavanaugh hearings um, uh, at the request of the nominee. Uh, I hasten to remind everyone in this podcast, I testified before anyone had really ever even heard of Christine uh, Blasey Ford. That was a, a later issue that arose, and I took no public position um, on the merits of that because I have no firsthand knowledge of adjudicative fact on it. He said, she said situation. But let's be honest, because I was I was in the room, and I, I could read the room. Um, no one's vote was going to be changed by almost anything anyone said. And in fact, at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the day, Kavanaugh went in with maybe one Democratic vote, um, uh, Joe Manchin, and and even after Christine Blasey Ford, you know, and all the rest, ended up with just one Democratic vote. Um, so it was all kabuki theater 
all you know set in stone um, even before the hearings because Vic's proposal from way back when has never been taken seriously. That the nominees have to actually answer questions, um, and if they don't, see, and, and and both parties are complicit in this, and both the Senate and the the nominees are complicit in this because. The, uh, the nominees don't want to answer questions, um, uh, and um, the senators want a grandstand. Let me take it actually back. The most honest process of all on that, there are about five issues that Vic raised, but the most honest um, one was actually Garland, because uh, Mitch McConnell announced in the past, it doesn't matter whom you pick, um, President Obama, we're going to vote against all of them. You know, And, and he, he didn't rough up Garland. He didn't even give Garland a hearing because it was, nothing was going to happen at the hearing. And so um, it's not just Dick Durbin isn't going to vote, didn't vote for um, a, any Republican. It's no Democrat has for a very long time and almost no Republican on the other side. Now, Susan Collins is particularly interesting in this because she's actually going to vote for Katanji Brown-Jackson, she announced. Um, but she actually voted against Amy Coney Barrett, interestingly. I think the, the only Republican um, who, who did. It was one Republican who didn't vote for um, Kavanaugh, but didn't vote against. Uh, I think Lisa Murkowski voted present or something. But there's almost no party um, uh, uh, crossing of the aisle. Now, there, uh, Durbin said a whole bunch of other things about the rule of 60, implicating filibuster reform and other things. So, so, uh, but I know, Andy, you want to jump in on this and then I can, I can yeah. go through some of the other issues that Vic um, teed up. But on this, and then we'll talk about campaign finance too, because um, I've got um, views about that. If only you see everyone had listened to Vic long ago or to yours truly long ago, because we were actually trying to make the process a real one in which senators would ask real questions and nominees would give real answers and everyone would understand these are not promises. These are just conversations about um, their current understandings of various issues. And Vic even said, this is what would be genuinely helpful. Ask nominees about past cases. So you don't have to hypothesize facts. They were real cases with real briefs and, and real um, litigants and, um, and um, and real opinions. Which opinion did you like the best? Which concurrence? Which dissent? Uh, the, the, the majority opinion. And and although I'm not sure Vic said it explicitly, I think it was implicit. It doesn't have to be oral. Um, the, the most important things that the Supreme Court um, uh, uh, justices do are, are not really oral. They, they write written opinions. They take their time to get it right. So so. It, it should be a written test of a certain sort. Here, take 10 days, take two weeks. You, you can you can use law clerks if you want. Write me an opinion on Brown versus Board of Education or the same-sex marriage case or a Griswold versus Connecticut, the contraception case, or Roe versus Wade or whatever. That would be a genuinely useful confirmation process. But they didn't accept Vic's and my ideas long ago, the promises were different from predictions. There's no ethical um, issue whatsoever about discussing real issues. So it's all kabuki theater. No one changes their mind about anything. It's party line votes, senators grandstand, and nominees stonewall. So a couple of things. I think, first of all, we want to differentiate here between voting and questioning. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, uh, Vic was, was saying that Senator Durbin was talking about the fact that no, you know, no one's voting, you know, for the other the other party's uh, nominee. Um, but 
Fair enough, really, because, you know, we talked last time about how this is a political process in part, and, and that actually can add legitimacy to the court, that, they're, that, that the voters, in a sense, are heard here. Um, so that, that, that isn't necessarily a problem. But if you're going to have these hearings, then I do think that, that it matters what is said at the hearings. You know, first of all, it, it offers the opportunity to persuade, um, possibly, and also it can educate the, the, the public and can also uh, help with the legitimacy of the court. Now, because we have this, this um, ethos where no one could possibly, you know, uh, ask a decent question that's going to get answered, um, then I think you'll see, because we're going to play in this uh, podcast, we're going to play some excerpts from the hearings, you're going to see a certain dis- dishonesty in some of the questions, that the questions are not designed to actually elicit uh, any gotchas. kind of reasoned response. Right. From they're the, gotcha questions. They're either gotchas or they're just meant to to promulgate certain memes yeah. that the yeah, public you know, uh, has, yeah. has embraced over the years. Uh, uh, and, and that's a problem. And these hearings could help to correct some of these problems if the questioning could be more honest. So I think that, that it's, it's true, Andy. You're right. But um, uh, and let's put on uh, the uh, website the op-ed that got me into a lot of trouble with my friends on on the left. Um, uh, uh, it was uh, uploaded by the New York Times within minutes of President Trump's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, and um, and um, I, I said Kavanaugh is actually the, the best Republican on the list. We lost the presidency. We lost the Senate. We're not going to do any better. That's what I said in my confirmation um, um, uh, testimony. But I also said right now there's no incentive to answer the questions honestly. In theory, it could be a, you know, a great national seminar, but why would you answer the questions honestly if you're never going to get a vote from the other side of the aisle and the only thing you could do is, is um, make a mistake that could hurt you, you know, with, with, with your team? So I actually said in order to actually get from where we are to where we need to be, um, senators who actually want the process to be real should have said, um, listen, it's 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 bogus now, and they should have been honest about it. They said it, it's 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 kabuki theater. Here's where I'm going to propose to, uh, to you, um, a Judge Kavanaugh. Um, ordinarily, you wouldn't you you shouldn't expect any Republican, excuse me, any any Democratic vote. But I'm going to ask real questions about real cases. I've read uh, Vic Amar, and if you actually answer them, you know I'm going to be inclined even if I disagree, to vote for you this time in order to create a new um, model of a confirmation process so that going forward, nominees actually have some you know, incentive to answer the question because we have a new set of precedents about um, uh, asking and answering. But right now, yes, in theory, even if the, the votes are all set, every Republican is going to vote one way and every Democrat is going to vote the other plus or minus one or two. If that's the current model, yes, in theory, you, we still have a great seminar, but why would the nominee want to play that game? Um, and so so Vic made a proposal. It shouldn't, it, it, we should ask about past cases. And and I think he was also saying it shouldn't all be oral. Now, this is not as interesting to the American people, you see, um, where you just want, you know, they just want to watch theater or something like that. But if you want a real seminar with Andy, which is what you want, you want ever scholar, you want actually readings, you know, you want it to be serious. Vic is saying, if you really want it to be serious, it has to actually have a written component along with an oral one. You know, when I'm saying in order to get to that world, 
um, one uh, set of senators are actually going to have to say this one time, you know, okay, Kay, you can ask me this one time about my business. Andy's laughing because we're, we're Godfather um, fanatics. Um, just this one time I'm going to actually, I'm going to be willing to go across the aisle. Spoiler alert. Okay. But this one time in order to create a new um, model going forward, I'm going to give you the uh, presumption of voting yes if I think you've actually fully and honestly answered substantive questions that we ask from our side. So can I, if I could jump in, uh, just a couple of thoughts on that stuff. Uh, to build on what you just said, first of all, in, in the piece that Andy was kind enough to put on your website uh, that I wrote for the Hastings uh, Law Journal a decade or so ago, I talked explicitly about this being a take-home exam. I said, um, if, the, if the nominee does not have an answer at the ready, uh, the senator should say, that's fine. Take, t- take your time. Give me a 10-page written answer in the next three weeks. That's, that, that's perfectly acceptable. Indeed, that's preferable. You can collect your thoughts. You can, you can do it uh, carefully. A lot of nominees don't know about every important line of cases. So uh, I think Justice Barrett, when, in, in her confirmation, she was asked about uh, some cases bearing on the ISL theory, and she didn't know what, uh, what those cases were or some other uh, important line of cases. That's okay. But then they should go back and read them and, and, and write something up. Uh, and and Vic, uh, just for our audience, ISL theory is independent state legislature. Um, it's all about Bush versus Gore and the upcoming presidential election. And you and I and Andy are going to do a podcast, at least one episode um, about that because it's hugely important going forward. Not today, but coming attractions. So uh, you mentioned a carrot that could be uh, used to help change the, the system. A, a, a senator from the opposing party could say, I will consider voting for you, even though your views might differ from mine, if you share your views with me, if you're open with me, if you're honest. Uh, even if you don't completely win me over, I might vote uh, for you. Indeed, I, I, I'll tell you, I will likely vote for you if, you're, if I think you're being honest. There's also a stick. A member of the same party could say, I'm not going to vote for you, even though I probably agree with you, unless you share with the American people uh, everything that you think about these past cases. Now, it may be harder to vote against a president of your own party than it is to vote in favor of a president of the opposing party. But as Senator Durbin said today, both of them are very risky votes in today's political climate. So you could have courageous senators do that as well. Say, I'm inclined to support you. Uh, From from what I know of you, I like you, but I'm still not, I'm not going to be doing that unless you participate in the process. I'm not going to hire you uh, if you don't go through the job interview with uh, some seriousness uh, uh, because otherwise why am I here? And, 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 note, and note that Susan Collins, just to repeat, voted against Amy Coney Barrett, a Republican nominated by a Republican president, and she's a Republican, um, and she's vo- going to be voting for Katanji Brown-Jackson, a Democrat um, uh, nominated by a Democrat press. Now note, finally, that She's a Republican in basically a Democratic state, and she's unusual in that regard. There are not very many in the entire Senate. There are about five or six senators that are actually um, out of sync with how their state voted presidential. Only five or six. in the also, She was just reelected also. also so she's, it's also not clear how many more elections she has in her, right? Anymore, how many more Senate elections? But, um, but also I, I think that if I could just, if I could just interject, you know, that, uh, you know, you mentioned these, these different um, – 
variants where you can vote, you know, uh, you can say, I'll vote for you, or if you don't answer me, I'll vote against you. Another way that you might be able to do it is a variation on pairing, where you actually get a senator from the, from the other party, and you agree ahead of time, I will say that this, for this nominee, I will make this this promise, and then when it's your turn, when the situation, you will make the same, you give me your word now that you will make the same promise. So now, you, you know, that might have a little bit more force, because now you'll have people from both sides, um, and somebody's got to take the first step, but, you know, you could, uh, I also think anything that increases, you know, collegiality and deal-making across the aisle um, is, is helpful as well. Yeah, yeah since I'm... Since I mentioned Susan Collins, and before I forget it, just because Durbin, and, and this is the first time hearing actually of, of Durbin's comments um, earlier today, um, but um, lest I forget, Durbin says, well, even if Biden were reelected, um, if he doesn't have the Senate, they may stonewall every. No, no, that's, that, that was my uh, oh. that was my supposition. He oh, said okay. in twenty twenty two. Well, a couple of things. It's not just the Supreme Court; it's actually lower federal court nominations as, as well. If Biden wins re-election, that means he's winning certain uh, key uh, swing states like Wisconsin, like Michigan, like Pennsylvania. Um, and if he wins that, because there's much less ticket splitting than there used to be. Vic and I wrote a piece actually way back, I think, in 1992, all about ticket splitting in the Virginia Law Review, because there's much less ticket splitting today. Um, if Biden wins in swing states, the Democratic Senate nominees are likely to win in those swing states as well. So he, um, at least in the first two years of a presidency, it's much more likely that a president will actually have the Senate. Of course, not all Senate seats are, are up for grabs in any presidential election year. Um, but um, your, our audience will remember that my 18-year proposal uh, for Supreme Court justices envisioned one presidential nominee in year one of a presidency and one in year three. Presidents are more likely, I said, to actually have Senates um, uh, of their party in year one, less likely in year three, and there would be sort of an alternation there uh, between unitary and divided government um, nomination and confirmation processes. Before we leave Senator Durbin's comments today and this general and hugely important question of substantive uh, interrogation and uh, making sure that the nominees actually engage and provide answers of their views on past Supreme Court cases. Let me share with you one other uh, uh, back and forth that, that a student had today with Senator uh, Durbin. The student asked, how do you assess a nominee in deciding whether to vote for him or her? And how, how, how would you suggest that we assess Judge Jackson? And he said two things. He said, first of all, look at her life story and look at her values. Values tell me a lot. Find out what her values are. And then the second thing he said was read her opinions. He said, I've read her opinions. Read her 600 opinions in the lower court. That'll tell you what kind of judge she is. It's interesting to me that Senator Durbin, in those two answers, did not really grapple with the, the point we talked about in the previous podcast, that as a lower court judge, 
you're constrained. You have to write opinions that fit into what the Court of Appeals, if you're a district court judge, or the Supreme Court, if you, even if you're a circuit court judge, have already said. You can only deduce so much from someone's opinions because those opinions don't necessarily reflect the judge's views so much as the views of the higher courts. Even as the senator did not seem to grapple with the fact that a court, a judge's lower court opinions may reflect more dutiful execution of higher court authority than her own views. He was very sensitive to institutional role when he defended Judge Jackson's time as a federal defender. So there he said, look, you're a, you're a lawyer doing a job. You're doing a noble job. We shouldn't, we shouldn't criticize you for things that you do because you're performing a certain role. So it was interesting to me that he understood the nature of the role as a federal defender, but he didn't seem to uh, carry that over to understanding or talking about at least um, how a lower court judge's opinions might not really reflect uh, her own uh, attitudes going forward. And of course, that brings, up a, that brings up a point, which is that not all nominees to the bench necessarily have to be judges. Um, it's, you know, didn't, it didn't used to be the case. Well, and, and, and Vic and I, of course, in, in what we wrote, talked, talked about, about how, how to think about um, a nominee who's a law professor, how to think about a nominee who's right. a private lawyer. We actually went through sort of all, all sorts of pre-Supreme um, Court um, uh, sets of, of professional experiences. But I did want to say at least one quick thing about Citizens United. You know, um, our audience will remember from um, episodes with Nadine Strassen and Floyd Abrams that I think Citizens United is easily and obviously correct. Um, it, you, um, it is utterly unconstitutional to try to shut down political discourse, including advertising, including by um, corporations um, prior to an election. The problem is not, with all due respect to Senator Durbin, the problem is not our Constitution or the First Amendment or Citizens United. The fundamental problem is maybe our primary process in which um, Democrats are worried about being primaried from the left and Republicans are worried about being primaried from the right. If that's the issue that's constraining kind of moderation and thoughtfulness, that's solvable by each party. Each party gets to decide actually some of its own um, rules of, of party selection. So it, the problem isn't Citizens United. It's actually um, how each party is, is picking its nominees. But, but even there, there's... Uh a prisoner dilemma of sorts, because if you're the first political party to change its primary approach and uh, reform it so that uh, primaries are not pitting extreme candidates against each other, primaries are important in part because the people who participate in primaries are really zealous. They're really eager. They're really committed. They're also the ones who give a lot of money. So if you tell your big donors in your party, we're going to move away from the importance of primaries. We're going to, we're going to change, reform primary processes so that you from the fringes no longer get to dominate. Then when it comes to the general and you need that person, those people's money to combat the, the other party, you're, you're going to be in, in some right. trouble. I, I know that's how they think. I think that's completely wrong. 
I want the audience to read Yuval Levin's piece in the New York Times this week. This is the first party that actually understands that it's going to win by moving to the middle rather than the extreme will be the dominant political party in America going forward. I think he's right. I think the people in D.C. think money is more important than it is. If money was so important, then actually Dick Blumenthal wouldn't be the senator from my state because actually the person who ran against him twice, Linda McMahon, you know, had all sorts of, of more money. And, and Jerry Brown, our mutual friend, went to been the governor of California because Meg Whitman um, outspent him. And Carly Fiorina might have been the nominee for the Republican Party because she had all sorts of money or, jo- or uh, Jeb Bush who had $80 million. And so, so I tend to think that actually the people surrounding these senators who are professionals who raise money, you know, and, and, and get paid and are measured um, by um, how much money they raise ha- are fundamentally wrong about actually what wins elections and what doesn't. So I, I know that he's spouting conventional wisdom. This is what he's been taught. And of course he, he, this is what he does for a living, but I think he's wrong. I think the, I think Yuval Levin is right um, in a piece by the New York times this week, which he says the first party that understands actually that, 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 that you win elections in the middle will actually be the dominant party in America going forward. So the problem isn't citizens United, honestly, it's, it's not the constitution. It's not the first amendment it's party extremists and the democratic party actually um is less prone to this he said the democrats have um the nominees have been less uh, liberal than the republican nominees have been conservative he didn't say that 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 was the inference i drew oh okay so um and that's sometimes called asymmetric polarization on that um I, i think there's some truth to it but we need to understand that um for um so you said that's not that's not quite true of Sonia Sotomayor, for example, but truthfully, it wasn't. It's not true on the, an issue that many Republicans care most about, which is Roe versus Wade and abortion. There's no daylight between Sonia Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who academically criticized it, but when it came to actually as a justice, oh my gosh you know, left, lefter, and leftist. And, and Ed Whalen says this, and he's right about that on RBG, or Steve Breyer, um, or Kagan. There's no daylight at all. And for many people in the Republican Party, even Vic, you know, our, our Aunt Josephine, you know, for example, she, she, we love her, okay? She's a, a kind of a godmother, very Catholic. She, she votes Republican because of the pro-life issue. It's, it's very, so for that, they think that a lot of Democratic appointees are all quite extreme. Um, so, and, 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 and again, um, um, measuring... It's a form of extremism to exalt one issue above all others. Uh, and if you're saying that's what the Republicans do, then that, that's a Well, well the, the, the point is, if and when Roe is overruled, as might happen this term, the Dobbs, in some ways... It may liberate the Democratic Party in certain ways and the court because now it's not just about that issue overwhelmingly. On um, the idea of restoring 60 votes. Um, Now, um, this is personal for me because actually what he's talking about is undoing the nuclear option, um, which actually, and, and the nuclear the, the option was, of course, as our audience will know, um, my idea. I persuaded Harry Reid to do it, as Vic said, involving lower court judges. 
here's um, though a confession for the audience. Um, the, the thing that I cared most about was establishing a precedent that 51 votes, 50 senators plus the vice president or 51 senators can change the filibuster rules. And once that precedent has been established, it actually kind of can't be undone uh, because 51 votes really did change the rules. My own and, and, and my own view is actually um, if there ever were a, an argument for maybe sometimes requiring more than 51, it might be actually judicial nominees. Germany, for example, um, has a more than simple majority rule. So, so actually, Senator Durbin here um, might be on to something. Um, I, would pref- um, uh, I would much prefer that we got rid of the filibuster for legislation. Um, I think it's much more important that 51 um, uh, Senate votes can, can actually pass um, any important bill um, than that 51 um, uh, senators can jam through um, uh, with the president uh, a Supreme Court nominee over the opposition of, 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 of 49 on the other side. So Senator Durbin may have a point that actually 60 is better for Supreme Court nominations. It wouldn't have to be for all nominations. It wouldn't have to be for lower court nominations. It wouldn't have to be um, for, for cabinet nominations. Um, um, and it definitely um, wouldn't have to be 60 for legislation. So it might very well be that having established the principle of the nuclear option in the context of judicial nominees, we could, we could undo it for that, but we should actually extend the nuclear option when it comes to ordinary legislation. That actually would be my view. So here's why I think that you know, my my first reaction to that was it's crazy, but uh, but um, I, it it can make a little sense from a sort of a structural point of view because you could say, all right, first of all, um, the house isn't involved, right? So you have one branch, um, um, and that's mm-hmm. you know that's there are other examples like treaties, you know, where yes. where you need more than than fifty in that in that circumstance, and you can say, well, okay, but. The House isn't involved when you have, you know, cabinet nominations. But, we'll, but last time we talked about the difference between, you know, me- confirming members of the executive branch that work essentially for the president, with the president, um, whose terms are likely to expire when the president leaves um, versus judges. And then, of course, that leads into the other question, which is the one of, of uh, life tenure or, you know, or its, or its equivalent good behavior. Um, and then again, because it's such a lengthy uh, term, that again the you might have a little higher threshold. So those are some structural reasons why it might make sense for judges, but it wouldn't necessarily make sense for legislation or cabinet members or other things. Andy, those are brilliant analytic points connecting the dots to co- with conversations that we had many many weeks ago over different podcasts. And I just want our audience members to to remember that um, within the last two days, Andy underwent major surgery with major anesthesia. He is back. <laughs> <laughs> so well done, Andy. Thank you. So good. he talked about Scalia getting ninety eight votes, RBG getting ninety six. Uh, he talked about Justice Blackman's uh, committee uh, hearings taking four hours in total, that, that they were that quick. Uh, and he seems to want to go back to a time when there wasn't some, ironically, he wants to go back to a time when there what, uh, was a, a look only at someone's credentials and not at ideology the way we think is legitimate, um, which is why, as I said, he didn't really uh, uh, discuss 
uh, uh, the legitimacy of, of asking uh, nominee to talk about past cases because he just wants to know about their character and their their uh, lower court record as a judge, which to me don't really uh, provide all that much information going forward. And also his bull because he, because he because he didn't vote for any of the Republicans and he didn't say that. Uh, you know, Kavanaugh, you know, didn't have, uh, or, or, again, yeah. that's right. I think, I think, he, I think he, I think he, he thought, well, if you go back to, you know, um, uh, to, to, to the Blackman era, you, we weren't a point, we weren't nominating people as extreme as Brett Kavanaugh is. Even Scalia, he would think is, was not ex, as extreme as Kavanaugh. So I don't know why he, he thinks that, but that's probably what he is. Now on Kavanaugh, by the way, Akhil, you should know, he, he, he said, look, Republicans continue to believe that Kavanaugh was treated unfairly. But he said, I just don't know what the what Senate could have done. We had these credible allegations. How could we not look into them? That wouldn't have been responsible. They had a pro- the answer is they had a process, and uh, Diane Feinstein screwed it up totally. It wasn't supposed – Christine Blasey Ford didn't want to go, go public. It was all – Utterly mishandled by the Democrats. Well, he thinks also that the FBI did not help out because they didn't really do an investigation. If they could have done an investigation, uh, and, and then the, the Senate could have looked at that without airing it also publicly. You know, so so Senator Durbin claimed that the process used to be more congenial. That um, I, be, I believe you said that he mentioned that uh, uh, Justice Blackman was conven- was confirmed after a very brief hearing. But of yeah, course, long, the whole Judiciary Committee hearing on, on Justice Harry Blackman. But of course, he was also confirmed after Justice uh, after the nominations of Carswell and Hainsworth failed. So That's it's, true. So it's not like no one you know ever got rejected. I mean, um, you know, in, in a way, you could say that the process worked there. Um, yeah, although although it bears mention that uh, for uh, uh, for Carswell. Uh, the concern that sunk him was not substantive or ideological so much as credentials, if I remember correctly. Isn't that right, Akhil? Wasn't Carswell the, um, uh, the, the, the nomination that prompted Senator Ruska to quip that don't mediocre people need representation on the Supreme Court or something to that effect? Right, right. Clement Hainsworth, I think, was a, a distinguished uh, lower of, uh, a court of appeals judge. Um, so so uh, that's consistent with a, a, a genial world if one of them just didn't have the stuff. Um, uh, uh, and he also pointed out that uh, Anthony Scalia uh, was confirmed with 98 votes and, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, he thought, with 96. So he, he laments the loss of this era where there was a lot more crossing of the aisle. But again, um, going back to our earlier conversation, there was no real discussion of why that's the Senate's proper function to be a rubber stamp. Why shouldn't the Senate get to look at the same substantive, uh, predictive indicators that a president clearly has on her mind when when a president picks um, uh, a nominee? Uh, and so if you focus on a lower court judge's record or someone's values or life story, that doesn't really predict voting uh, going forward. And, and he didn't get into a, a deep discussion uh, of that. Well, I'm curious about um, the fact that this was uh, Senator Durbin's first chairmanship. Um, so were there any questions about how he approached that? And uh, because I know there was some there was some stuff in the papers about his perhaps aggressive use of the gavel and and uh, you know of, of uh, you know commenting after to rebut statements that Republican senators were making. Um, 
you know, before the next senator's turn. Um, were, were there any questions about that or any comments on that? No, no one really asked him about his leadership style on this committee. Um, I suppose someone who had waited a long time to take the helm uh, wants to make sure that his time uh, uh, in charge uh, is, is one where he can leave a stamp. Uh, as I said earlier, he was publicly and visibly critical of three or so senators on the other side of the aisle and how they uh, comported themselves in this hearing. And so I think he uh, he wanted to make sure that he could blow the whistle on people during the hearing itself. He pointed out, uh, perhaps rightly, that the public sentiment surrounding Judge Jackson, as measured by opinion polls and the like, showed increased support for her nomination throughout the hearing. So that all of the hardball tactics, all of the mudslinging, all of the uh, distraction, as, as Senator German might consider it, uh, engaged in by these three or four Republican senators, they didn't seem to land many blows. They didn't seem to sway the American people who came out of this hearing uh, more favorably inclined to Judge Jackson than they went into it. Uh, and I know that, you know, in a subsequent uh, uh, podcast, we'll, we'll look at some of the clips from the, her performance. I should say, overall, I, I didn't see all of it by any measure, but what I saw led me to believe that she carried herself pretty well. She didn't answer tough, substantive questions, as none of the uh, nominees in recent decades have done. But I, I came away impressed with her as uh, a thinker and as uh, someone of real presence. Well, you know, I watched the um, most of the hearings, and uh, you know, I was reminded of of a statement that Andrew Roberts made recently when asked about a uh, new book that was written about Churchill, which is very critical of Churchill. And uh, what he said was, uh, never in the field of Churchill revisionism have so many punches been thrown in so many pages with so few hitting home. And that was kind of the, the impression I got from, from the hearings. Uh, I'm not sure if it was so much uh, Judge Jackson's you know, skill at dodging the punches so much as uh, they, were, they were thrown with so little uh, substance behind them. And, yeah, uh, you know, so, so little, yeah, so little deafness even. Um, uh, and maybe this comes back to Akhil's point earlier. Maybe we're getting to the point where the nation is ready for some, you know, common sense from the middle. Um, uh, enough of this extreme distraction techniques. Uh, if Akhil's right, that the first political party that reforms its primary process to try to move toward the middle will end up winning more elections and gaining control of, of maybe the entire uh, government and not in a regime of divided government, um, you know, maybe indicators like the public's reaction to what, what happened in this hearing are uh, some, some green shoots to build on going forward. Well, we're going to uh, analyze some of, the, some of what happened in terms of the, listening to people's own words um, on our next podcast. And you might say, well, why, you know, why bother? Um, but I think that it's, it's instructive from many points of view because if the senators are not asking questions because they think they're going to trip the judge up, and if they know that the judge is not going to really you know, answer anything that's particularly uh, tough anyway, then, then they're doing what Akil has referred to as grandstanding, but they're doing it in a way that's very revealing about what they think the public believes about the Supreme Court. And I think that, that, that this podcast can serve a useful role in pointing out here's what they're, they're implying and here's what the facts are.
So that's oh, some of what either, either it shows what they believe the public thinks about the court, or perhaps, Andy, it shows what they believe the segment of the public that they care most about, namely the Republicans who are going to determine the presidential primary in 2024, what that subgroup of American uh, voters think about the Supreme Court. So whether it's Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or anybody, they're not really playing to the entire public. They're playing to a much narrower audience um, uh, because they, they're their own little set of scorpions in this Republican bottle um, uh, vying for uh, a successor position to, uh, to, to Donald Trump. We actually saw some of this in the, uh, another big news story from this week. Uh, the Washington Post had an article that Akhil shared with me about Senator Ted Cruz's role in 2020 in trying to uh, uh, keep President Trump in office. Um, uh, so he was working along with the John Eastmans of the world on strategies to help keep President Trump in office. And Akhil asked me, as he often does, because he still thinks he's uh, able to talk to me Socratically like I'm, I'm some law student. So he says, do you, do you know why Tom, uh, Cruz was doing this? Do you know? Do you know? Um, instead of just telling me what he thinks the reason is. And I said, well, my answer is he wanted Trump to remain in office four more years so that Trump wouldn't be eligible to run yet again in 2024. If Trump lost in 2020, he could come back and 2024. And that's the last thing a Ted Cruz would want is to have to deal with, with Donald Trump. He wants him over and done with, and then he can he can succeed Trump and, and even maybe uh, have Trump in his corner because he helped, he helped Trump stay in office in 2020. So again, I think a lot of what we saw from Holly and from Cruz is about the next, is two years uh, from now and, uh, and the, uh, the Republican presidential processes. Um, and and we'll, we can get into that when we, we hear some of the clips uh, that you have lined up for us to talk about next time. And for the record, as a Socratic law professor, that was the correct student answer. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, when I get it right, I'm still happy. (laughs) Okay, so until next time, thank you again, Vic Amar. Um, And really great stuff here from uh, Inside Look at Senator Durbin's comments. Thank you very much. And Andy, thank you. Um, the audience needs to understand uh, that, that this podcast is Andy's brainchild from start to finish. I think this is the first time that we sort of haven't um, in 70 weeks or so that we haven't uploaded it just uh, on the, on the, uh, on the week mark. And that's because Andy underwent major uh, unexpected surgery this week and he has bounced back in a wonderful fashion. It is great to see you back, Andy. And we are so very grateful to you um, for making this uh, week's podcast and every week's podcast possible. Well, thank you so much. Although I, I'm reminded of, uh, I had I had to get a, uh, not this time, but early, some other time, I had to get a, a skin cancer taken off. And uh, and I went for my post-op visit, went back, and my wife was, wanted to know how it went. And I said, I got bad news. I look exactly the same as before the surgery. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Until next time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you both much. Bye-bye.